Hi, and welcome back to Mum Will the Planet Die Before I Do, the podcast about parenting in the climate crisis. This week, we chat to author and broadcaster Lucy Siegel about fast fashion, how we clothe our families can have a huge impact on the climate. You'll hear a few eureka moments in this episode as Lucy helps us understand we're more than what corporations would lead us to believe. We hope you enjoy the chat and we'll catch you on the other side. Well, Lucy, thank you very much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. I'm more excited. I don't you? believe you. How, how, what, what's more more excited than us? We now need to quantify the moreness of this podcast, don't I we? I haven't seen very many people today, so I'm really excited to talk to you. <laughs> wow, that sets the bar quite low, but that's fine. We'll take that. We'll take that. That's fine. We will take that's it. Fine. Do you know, we've been talking about this for a while, um, fashion, consumption of goods, products, and ethicalness. That doesn't quite make a sentence, does it, Katie? But we've been talking about what we can do in our own little way as individuals that can be action-based when it comes to bringing about change. And I know you, Lucy, have been looking at this for a long time, long before it was cool to talk about it. So so lay out your store for us, if you can, you know, what fast fashion is all about um, and what your view on on it is now compared to what it may have been 10 years ago. Probably have to go back even longer if you can bear it, because I'm so old. So I probably um, was brought up in a sort of, you know, loving fast fashion um, when it was sort of emerging. So what was happening behind the scenes was that um, we often we obviously used to have a fashion and textiles industry in the UK. And that was being sort of offshored um, throughout the 1980s into the 1990s. Um, and then we were seeing uh, the first sort of what I would define as fast fashion um, stores and culture sort of emerge. And I was a very enthusiastic purchaser of those kind of garments. And what never really sat with me was that I also had carried these sort of latent environmental eco-warrior vibes. And when they came to the fore, I just started noticing how much waste there was. And I felt quite overwhelmed by my own you know, collection of garments and the fact that I was always buying stuff and I was, I felt under so much pressure to buy. And I started to sort of deconstruct my own lifestyle as a way to try to understanding whether there was a lower impact way to live. And I probably did all the other subjects first. So I did food, um, even furniture, tech, you know, ran through all the different sort of lifestyle, travel, all of that stuff. And I really didn't touch fashion for ages because I knew I had a really big problem myself. And I think really um, there's there's always like loads of like, you know, um, epiphanies aren't there in these things. And I but I do remember some of them. And I remember a friend of mine who was environmentalist, environmental scientist saying to me, I think we're on a platform like talking about, you know, eco this, that and the other climate change and saying to me, your cardigan that you're wearing, which I was very fond of, is a green cardigan. Imagine all the oil that went into the buttons on that cardigan. And I thought, oh my God, because this cardigan had loads of buttons. And I was like, oh, how much oil do you think went into these? And it, it, uh, nine grams or whatever. And I was thinking, that's a, that's a conversation starter. So I can't say I've ever had that. Well, if you hang out with environmental scientists, these are the sort of conversations. These are the stuff they'll come out with. Okay. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, okay, that's a really literal interpretation of the impact of garments. And um, 
I thought I really have to explore this. And that's really when I came up with a book that became To Die For, which came out about 2009. Um, and it looked at very seriously and in quite a lot of detail, which was quite controversial at the time, at the impact of um, the clothes that we wear and how they were made and how much energy resources went into them and what might happen to them afterwards, which is when I sort of started thinking about fashion waste. And um, of course, the labor behind the label. So the hands behind the garments, if you like, the hands behind the fashion, who were they? What circumstances were these clothes produced in? And spoiler, it was a pretty messy and disturbing picture. Um, and then that went on to die for went on to be made into a documentary basically called The True Cost, which came out in 2015 and was on um, Netflix and um, has been seen all, all around the world. So even last week, I, you know, I get um, students from all over the world contacting me who are doing now PhDs and stuff, very clever things. And To Die For is one of the things that they've read. Um, so all these years on, I have these conversations every day about the impact of clothing. And it's incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. And I remember True Cost coming out and then just the headline being that the fashion industry is the second most polluter in the world only after oil. And that just catches you because I think that's, even that's now... That's a bit dodged, that stat. Oh, is it? I'm not sure that we that was our stat because because I I would say it's in the top five. This is an issue that that's, that's probably going to haunt this conversation as it haunts everything. Is that there's a lot of spooky data around fashion textiles, and um, it definitely has an impact. And the reason why I'm being a bit pedantic is because that data is now being used in very odd ways. And we are now facing this sort of spectre of greenwash all the time. So you have brands saying, I'm really green on, because I halve my carbon emissions by using recycled plastic and blah, blah, blah. And these, these calculations are much more complex um, mm. than they first appear. So that's why, mm. sorry, being a bit pedantic about that. No, but that really matters. I mean, when you were talking, what struck me when you were talking there was about that kind of, when you realised that you had a problem about you know buying stuff and I think lots of people who are trying to make different choices I, I went to a degrowth workshop and there were some young people there kind of and this one young girl she must have been about 21 it was all about kind of being you know zero waste and being green and she just looked at me and she said I can't stop buying things I can't stop buying clothes mm. so that kind of realization that you know we are consumers we live um in the developed world we we've got stuff you know particularly for people with families you have to buy stuff you've got loads of pressures on your time but that kind of like almost addiction or mental kind of compulsion to to buy is what's really I think captivating about what you do and obviously that kind of prompted you to to be doing this work as well yeah it's really oppressive that level of consumption and women share the burden of that don't they I mean you know we're expected to keep the economy float afloat by buying all this stuff all the time we're expected to have a Marie Kondo only have things in your house which spark joy I mean well look at all the crap that I've got in my house some of it sparks joy some of it doesn't but you know I mean the reality of the situation is it's terribly oppressive and, and you have to have a lot of it in your house 
you know, when you've got kind of families or whatever, there's World Book Day, Babs and I were just talking about that, you know, there's all of this stuff that you have to get, costumes for things, yeah. stuff for birthday parties, buying and buying kind of clothes is such a part of our responsibility to look after, you know, families and stuff, you can't get away from it, you can't send them out naked. <laughs> no, we yeah. all need, we all need to be dressed and, you know, you you, you need, of obviously you need different clothes, so, you know, practically you, you need different thermal comfort in different you know well let's yeah let's break it down though if we can a little bit because there'll be some people listening to this that going fast fashion that's become like you said it's kind of got a an identity of its own because of the controversy or the greenwashing or whatever so how would you define fast fashion oh well there is a very specific definition of fast fashion so fast fashion is a rapid means of production where labor is offshored and um, and it is driven by trend cycles. So if you want to put some numbers on that, you know, we celebrate fashion in a very traditional sense um, with fashion weeks. So New York, Paris, London, and Milan, isn't it? Um, and then there's a couple of extra ones now. And those have traditionally marked two different fashion seasons, which are autumn, winter, and spring, summer. That's how the fashion catalogue is supposed to run. And within that, you get all the trend forecasts and you're supposed to get seasonal collections, which used to come into store and be readily available. Yeah. And what has that has got as, about as much in common with today's fashion cycle as Gregorian chant has to drill music. Probably there is a connection between Gregorian chant and drill. I was going to say, whatever. that's something we need to like find out yeah. about. Um, it probably is um but but it, it's it's just like now we have brands and retailers who are bringing in multiple collections per week so if you look at Shein they are producing what 60,000 new lines a week you know it's this is like a different order what? of magnitude yeah That's I mean they're small they're small runs and they're done you know it's done online and stuff but it's it's you know and even the, the stuff that I'm talking about to die for and clutching my pearls over, you know, um, high street retailers, that's like old world now, isn't it? Because yeah. I don't even know who who is running some of these brands now. And it's, you know, social shopping. I think as we speak, Instagram has just moved its shop button, which is really super interesting. But this accelerated rate of, um, consumption can only really be satiated by an accelerated rate of production right. so the headline is we have a system of overproduction for overconsumption, and that's really what fast fashion is to me and within that there are all sorts of issues when it comes to social and environmental justice now fast fashion will also do a lot of positive things for people but that's not my interest my, my it's a real I, thing Babs and I were talking about that of you know people I've got three kids school uniforms are really expensive and you know for some of the families in our school you would go to a kind of cheaper retailer because you you just have to so it's those kinds of things but I they think, shouldn't be they're not fashion that's true that's true the question there for me would start to um point to a slightly more you know, a deeper dive into the descriptor I've just given. And one of the hallmarks of fast fashion and this system that I describe is a blurring between garments and fashion. Yeah. 
So there are things that should be standard garments made very, very durably that can be swapped, passed on, altered, mended, and just worn. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, worn the shit out of, but you know. Now you've done that, we have to to put the warning on this episode. There we go. So it's (laughs) It's normally me who breaks that. It's usually Katie that does it first. So it's good, I'm really pleased with someone else. But I I hear what you're saying, Lucy, but I just wanted to go back to something you just said where you're not concerned about the other side of it. And that I think- Well, I'm not here to present the positives of it is what I was saying. Why not? Because it's not, I'm not a PR for fast fashion. So my primary- So there is, yeah. So as consumers, is there any positives to be had from it or are we, I mean, yeah, what is your- Oh yeah, there's loads. I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes, otherwise it wouldn't be successful. You know, it's very trend driven, a lot of- It's convenient. It's convenient for, um, you know, people's lifestyles. If if you want to like, you know, you can go to the supermarket and buy a cashmere cardigan or something that says it's a cashmere cardigan. So, you know, there's lots of pluses for people. Absolutely, 100%. But they're not of interest to me because I prioritise social and environmental justice and it doesn't tick any boxes for me there. So that's the nature of my work and that's the purpose of what I do. There's many other people who are cheerleading about all the other stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, what should we be mindful of then when we're thinking about the consumption of fashion and also wider being as consumers and getting everything and being in a world of everything where you can grab everything at the click of a button? I mean, you know, we're talking about action based solutions to trying to make a bit of a difference or trying to help the planet, the next generation. What do we need to be thinking about? Well, I think the first thing is don't think of yourself as a consumer. You are a citizen with agency. Oh, I like that. That's who you are, you know. But you're not a consumer. This is absolutely fascinating because I think we just take it as an assumption that we, even in our conversations, Babs, like, you know, thinking about this, we, even though I like to think I'm a bit of a zero waste, you know, aspiring to be, I've thought of myself as a consumer. And you, but you're absolutely right. That's really mind blowing what you've just said. Well, you go on, you go on work, degrowth workshops. I mean, Yeah, so I you're do. definitely not just a consumer. No, but <laughs> no, that's she, what no, we're Lucy, told. The truth like... is that she goes on these degrowth workshops and she sits in the corner rocking back and forth, <laughs> yeah. um, saying, "I am, I am a consumer. I am a consumer." Um, well, but... that's part of her process. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted your your flow, Lucy. Yeah, sorry. Carry on. We're not no, no, uh, no. Yeah. It's it's it's. But the the thing is to separate yourself from the framing, from the marketing and the PR and the. The people who are trying to flog you the stuff, right? So, and it's much it's much more expansive than that. So I know it's really hard to do. So then I think the second thing is, what are you trying to achieve? So if you are, where are your priorities? So we just talked about priorities, which is super interesting to me. And, you know, there's this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which governs like, you know, do you, the, the difference between need and want and desire and um, and then just buying stuff to fill a void, um, psychological void quite often and stuff like that. So there's lots of different reasons why we buy stuff. And some of that is because we need stuff. Like you've just given me quite a few examples and there are valid needs all the time. And there are people who under consume as well, by the way, which maybe we should talk about in a minute. But the the um, if you need so you need a pair of school socks, <laughs> you can tell I don't have children. So school socks, for example, or something like that. Right. And you need them really quickly. And we always need school socks in our house. Oh, my God. Well, I, 
I just where do they go where do socks go right where do socks go that's a whole different podcast probably and you you know I don't think that people should beat themselves up like people who don't have any time spend two evenings agonizing about where to get these fictional socks from right and then they're there and they're going to you know they just need to buy them there and then you know and it's a need it's a need but then recognizing when you are in a bind and there's pressure on you to buy more and buy more and buy more because you don't feel that you'll be accepted by a group or there's lots of not so wholesome reasons so I feel a lot of people and this is the problem with ethical consumerism and these diktats which you know I've been guilty as anybody you know in various formats of saying don't do this do this don't do this do this is that they're not nuanced enough and context is everything if you've got time to research um, a sustainable outfit, great. If you need to buy something quickly and you're on a limited budget and your kid needs to be warm for X reason, that's the priority, isn't it? So I, I really try not to castigate anybody for going to use high street shops. Well, maybe, maybe them, yeah. And I think it's really interesting. And I think you're right. It is layered up and it is nuanced, right? And I think maybe then the question is, how do we become ethical shoppers or shoppers with a conscience that leads towards wanting a better future for our kids in a greener planet? Well, I do think that it's a very worthwhile activity to um, remember that you're not a consumer, you're someone, a citizen with agency and a global citizen, and that the money that you spend can often be laddered up into a really important action point for precisely the crisis that you describe, the cli- what I would call the climate and nature crisis. So it's de- definitely worth doing. And I think the first thing is to remember is that you do have some power because you've got that pound to spend. And if you've got that pound to spend, it gives you power in this system. Then it's like, okay, so what are the vital rules around different parts of this? So different um, groups, different uh, consumption groups like fashion, tech, blah, 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 food, you know, because everything's got slightly different rules, hasn't it? Um, because everything's made in a slightly different way. And um, let's focus on fashion. So fashion is a very complex product. It um, is, there's 101 technical points to making any garment. And that goes from picking the cotton bowl right through to the tag at the end and how it's marketed. But the stress of producing that garment often lands in one particular place. And it can land in, when we talk about social justice and some environmental impact, it lands on six to eight points when the the garment, the pieces are assembled and cut and sewn. And we know that that takes place in um, what we call textile hotspots, ready-made garment hotspots like Bangladesh, Vietnam, Myanmar, you know, those um, those kind of areas where production has gone. And that's because it has the lowest wages in the world and a vast workforce or army, as I refer to them, of young women. And wage theft is endemic. So once you know in that system there's all of these people who will fulfill this role and you can steal their wages and they can't do much about it. Hello, that's, you know, we're going to go there, aren't we? So 
we start to know a little bit more about the supply chain. And then we start to think, is this an appropriate supply chain for me to patronize? And a lot of people would say, no, it's not. But then we have this real complexity. So you're probably familiar with the term food desert. And that is loads of places in the UK, for example, where you can say to people, oh, you must eat five fruit and vegetables a day, or you know, you must have a rainbow diet. And it's like, are you joking? I have to get a taxi to the supermarket, cost of living prices, I can't afford to go there. Yeah. I've got a corner shop which doesn't sell any of those things because it's all pre, you know, pre-packaged stuff. And I think we sort of have some people have clothing deserts or textile deserts in a way. Like all you've got are brands that you can access that can be delivered to your door without um, delivery fees, which some of the big players can do. Um, or you can, you know, maybe get to a high street or a superstore or something like that. So, you know, you're quite restricted on where you can go with that. So then what do you do? How do you follow these ethical rules? Like, how do you be better about what you consume? But that's exactly why we want to have this conversation. Because yes. Katie and I have been discussing this for a while. And I, I know you've just asked the question, but I, we were trying to get you to answer that question for Yeah, but us. that's what I was coming to my next point. Okay. So, yeah, so, if we, so what I'm talking about is a sort of pyramid, if you like. So we've started with this, this, this layer and now we get to the nub. So what can you do? And then you look at all these quite complicated metrics and how some brands are messaging, we're green because we use recycled plastic content X amount and um, we're green because we use organic cotton and um, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, my dogs are being really vocal. Oh, we love dogs, don't worry. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear any barking dogs. Daphne and Arthur have gone a bit nuts. Daphne That's and funny. Arthur. Do you they know those names say a lot about you, Lucy? Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, I got them both from Battersea and they were pre-named. So maybe it's oh, about Battersea. I don't know. Yeah, there um, you go. But let's let's give you the let's give you the, the point that you're after. So there's all these very complicated metrics for deciding how something's sustainable fashion and how it's the blah blah blah. And the truth is that because there is a lot, there are a lot of data flaws, there's a lot of missing data, that you can look at all of this. And actually conclude, it's very hard to know if something is incrementally a bit more sustainable than this or a bit better than this or a bit better than this, especially because all of these brands are sourcing from the same system. Um, And it's a system problem, as with so much in um, eco living and, you know, this, this whole debate. I'm sure you come across this the whole time. So what do we do? And the answer is really, really simple. You don't buy anything unless you can commit to wearing it until it's like not wearable anymore. So initially, when I used to be asked this the whole time, I was like, this is all very complicated. I was like, yeah, 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 but just give us something quick. And I was like, okay, 30 wears. Don't look at anything unless you can commit to wearing it 30 times. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. Scroll on past, walk on past is not for you. Um, but to be completely honest, 30 wears is not enough. It needs to be mm. 300 plus, you know. Yeah. A lot of people, they'd be like, oh, how outrageous. I've had this jumper. Like I always used to say yeah. the 30 wears thing, and they'd be like, I've had this jumper since 1963. Yeah, I, I can like, just imagine, yeah. Yeah, but you haven't met have you, you, a Gen Zer uh, or, a, you know, an Instagram mm. influencer. And they're like, what's Instagram? And I'm like, okay, this is this conversation. Yeah, no, let's stop. So Um, like firing out this advice, 30 words, which became a hashtag. A lot of people use it, but 
if you could if you could do hashtag 300 words or 3000 words I'd feel I'd sleep a lot safer. So that's kind of interesting to me though that whole thing about being a green consumer or a responsible consumer it kind of feels like a bit of an oxymoron and we talked to Tessa Khan um, from Uplift um, a climate and environment lawyer in the last series and she was talking about this concept of the carbon footprint and how that was kind of made by the fossil fuel industry to make us feel like we have some kind of responsibility for the stuff that they're doing and it kind of feels similar in this conversation as well like we obviously do have lots of agency because as you say we've got that pound and we're going to spend it but as you also said you use the word agonizing which I love because I have been there agonizing agonizing for hours trying to find you know ethical kids clothes or ethical this or and you're aware that there's loads of greenwashing as well so kind of boiling it down into a simple kind of like just make this about how many wares this is going to get is actually I think really really useful yeah and and to be quite honest it's it's not just me saying this I mean I have said it for a long time and I remember I think it's in to die for maybe it's in an, another thing that I did but there's a there's a picture by a great female fashion photographer who produced lots of work in the 1950s and 1960s and I forget her name I think it might be Bannerman anyway it's called mileage per wear and it's this beautiful 1950s dress on a model who's looking out of a train window and I used to have a picture of that on my wall for years and years and years because mileage per dress I'm like oh my god yeah that's it isn't it it's like dress mileage and then you can start thinking on a much more creative level how many how, what stories is are attached to this what stories can I create with this piece mm. what history is this going to have what's going to be its fashion mileage how mm. many times am I going to wear it on Instagram in different ways and uh, am I going to hand it on to the next generation you know it's like and then and then it becomes from this functional how can I be a better consumer into something that taps into the creativity, promise, and magic of fashion. And yeah. that's the bit that I really am interested in. Do you, know, do you know, it's really interesting hearing you talk because um, I'm second generation, right? So my mum and dad came from India in the 1960s and I was born and brought up in the UK. And everything you're saying to me is how they lived their lives. Mm. are living their lives like I'm one of three girls the youngest of three so hand-me-downs were a big thing and I think that was a generation post-wartime post-partition of India kind of the survival experience experience of immigrants when you don't have a lot you 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 make the best of what you've got and it's often about not 3,000 wares 300,000 wares almost you know what I mean you are literally wearing it sewing it up till it's down to its reds and you're passing it through the kids. We did that with shoes. We did that with trousers. We did that with coats. We did that with absolutely everything. That was the environment in which I grew up in. Um, which is completely different to the environment that I grew up in. And it's different was... to the environment in which my daughter, who's three, is growing up in. Yeah. And it, and you're reminding me, you're making me think, well, you know, mum did it for me and, and stood by that and made things really colourful and fun and whatever and here I am kind of just clicking because I'm telling myself I don't have time well I feel like I don't have time I feel like an added pressure you probably don't have time and you also might not it might not be your thing you know some people are good at great cooking and some people are amazing at textiles and you know some of that story was necessity but also within that necessity I often come across people who are just really good at it and they they view clothes almost like really they're interested in the textile 
and they can remember a textile or a piece, a patchwork piece from 50 years ago. And the detail they remember and the way that, you know how I always spot people who are good at this is the way they describe textile in whatever language. And sometimes, you know, I've been to Bangladesh quite a few times and obviously I have to use a translator. And I remember being in a village and just having a chat with a woman who'd actually survived the Rana Plaza catastrophe and was rebuilding her life. And she's working actually in a fair trade fashion factory. And she had, when she was working in Rana Plaza, which was a, a big disaster in 2013, in, in uh, April 2013, when over a thousand people were killed mm. making fashion in for Western brands in a building that that collapsed, partially collapsed. Anyway, she had been retrained as a tailor because when she's working in the Rana Plaza, she was only sewing one seam. So she didn't no clue how to make a whole garment. And then as part of this scheme, she actually learned to become a tailor. And she just had this ability that reminded me sometimes of when I talked to quite big name designers who come out of St. Martin's and stuff like that. She had a feel for fabric and a way of describing it, which was very poetic. And she can almost describe the weight of different fabric mm-hmm. in words. But I think, yeah, I think and it's think- like, wow. Yeah, you know, like some people who cook are really good at describing like different flavors and stuff like that. So there's all different sorts of skills and you can't, you can't like beat yourself up if you don't have all the skills and, the, and plus the time. So then it becomes, okay, so what are the alternative methods and systems of production who I can buy, I can purchase this from. Yeah. I'm not going to do it myself. And fortunately, and this is the exciting thing for me, is that we are coming across more and more of those schemes, of which I think fashion rental is really super interesting yeah. and highly accessible for people who don't have all of the skills of making stuff or redesigning or upcycling. I get it, Lucy. Do you, Katie, kind of get it in a way that I didn't, before it's kind of reminded me of um like I said of mum and, and the hand-me-downs but also I think you're right I think we're on the cusp of something really changing where people want to be a bit more like let's rent something let's not buy it if we need that amazing sorry for the night out we we don't have to kind of spend however much on it we can maybe borrow or rent and I yeah, think because we're not necessarily consumers we are what was the what was the other um the citizens way with agency it? citizens <laughs> with agency that's such a kind of beautiful re- re- really helpful reframing for me of thinking it's not just about me kind of ne- being necessary that's not a necessary thing um so the renting stuff is yeah it's it's exciting like bab says i i feel like it is we're on an exciting cusp what i feel like has been kind of holding people like me back is just that kind of total befuddlement of so much information and it being so overwhelming to try and make these responsible choices when you think oh why can't the bloody companies just make why can't they just make it easy why can't they just clean up their act and well I mean that is also a really good question yeah I mean that's what Babs and I were saying that before you know why should it be the onus on us to stand there like utterly befuddled by all of these thousands of choices I just filmed with um some people in Liverpool actually and I just had such a great time and we were I, I spoke to somebody who started renting out her wardrobe she she was a mum of two very short of time had a few pieces for various reasons, couldn't go back to work. Well, basically because the childcare was so expensive, which is a whole other issue. And she started renting out pieces. 
she's got the best eye and she's got like the best take on rental that I've come across today. I thought she was wonderful. And then I met people at the other end who were renting her stuff. <laughs> we had the best time because these are communities. Yeah. So it's style plus community. Before what was happening is, you know, what you two are, are, are defining really well. You pushed on your own. You're a consumer. It's all about you. All the pressure's on you. And then, oh, and by the way, you, you need to be a more ethical consumer. In the same system, you, you sort that out. And you're like, what the? Mm. Um, I've got enough to do. Also, I don't know if I'm wearing the right thing or if it's stylish enough or blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'll go on to this. I'll, I'll, I'll look up at these influencers and maybe try and ape what they do. Oh, they're buying more. They're not really buying it. They're getting given it for free. You know, it's a hot, it's a calm. Yeah. It's a calm. So let's get rid of the calm and let's, you know, let's do something really valid. I'm not saying rental is a complete solution. There's a long way to go, but let's start looking at these different models which support us, you know, our, our way of our sharing yeah and bring it back to community bring it back to community that's exactly. what we found again and again and again in the last series by and large almost so I don't know why I'm surprised that this conversation has gone back back to that today but again and again and again that was where all of the solutions lie so you're right if we're living and breathing next door to people they're wearing this they're renting that out like that's a no-brainer Thank you so much. You've given us so much food for thought. And I think we need to have another conversation about this, Katie, don't you? Yeah. We probably need to do another rep on this alone because, yes, we wanted to kind of find out about fast fashion, being more ethical as consumers and being more eth ethical shoppers. Um, but actually, we maybe need to simplify all of what's in our head and all that we've consumed <laughs> in the media or whatever in the last few years and actually just break it down and be like, just think about again ourselves and how we can help the community and each other and swap clothes rent clothes and that, that being the presumption like rather than this kind of addiction to consumerism reframing it as you were saying Lucy as, as the presumption being a community-based model and the presumption being a circular thing yeah it's funny if, even as the way that you're kind of presenting or that we're presenting a thing is is biased in a certain way it's fascinating but. exactly it's so fascinating and that's why when you said your first series was philosophical I'm thinking stay with that because that's how it is and mm. you know what it's like the symptom of fix this give me 10 points give me 10 10 things that I should buy now which is sustainable is is part of the problem it's the same yeah. system it's the same system but let me tell you the opportunity which you know Babita describes in such a beautiful personal way my god the more I think about it the more I think we're onto something like look at the heritage of textile production look at the heritage of um of um immigrant communities coming here and bringing their textiles from the huguenots from, probably from the romans onwards look at what we've amassed here look at the skill base that we still have the last fragments of and tell me that we can't create a really vibrant sustainable fashion economy in the uk yes we can yeah courtesy of mum thanks mum I mean, thanks all the mums and dads of the world we, that have been thrifty yeah. and kind is, of is your mum still still around Babita? she's not um no she passed away last year sadly oh I'm so sorry thank you yeah. don't you'll get me in tears um do you have any of her stuff do you have any like textiles or anything from her my mum was a hoarder so yes <laughs> wow uh, loads of stuff yeah don't you'll get me in tears I think what I wanted to say was I think um 
you know, they had very little when we were growing up. We grew up above a corner shop and I was the youngest of three girls and they kind of just bought what they needed to get, made it work for all of us. And actually, why not? And the real beautiful stuff they made, you know, was made. And now I think about it, especially with mum passing last year, it's like, I hold on to that incredibly like dear. Whereas like, there I am buying my daughter, like whatever is coming off and click, click, click. And actually she'd probably really enjoy me making something, but I don't think my skills are as good as mum's, but yeah. Yeah, but also maybe she gets, she'll get that energy and that link through something else. You know, it's not always going to be textiles for everybody, is it? No, no, but it is, it's interesting because when you mentioned the parallels between food and clothing, I I totally get that with immigrant communities because it is about food and it is about, it's about the basics, making it work and then bring it into something that's just so beautiful. And I think that's probably what we need to think about more. Lucy Siegel there chatting to us about how we're not just consumers, we're citizens with agency. Thank you, Lucy, for such an enlightening conversation. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Don't forget to get in touch with us. You can find us on social media using the hashtag MumWillThePlanetDie. In the next episode, we chat to Dan Bates, a man who looked at the climate and cost of living crises and decided his way of helping was to start his own energy company. That's coming out next. Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.